Welcome to another episode of Glam City. I'm Anna Clark, your resident historian here at UTS. On Glam City, we speak to the hard-working people who are lifting the lid on Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums, our indomitable glam sector. On this episode of Glam City, I'm delighted to be speaking with local historian Geoffrey Potter. Hi, Geoffrey. Welcome. Thanks, Anna. Now, you're a local historian on the Central Coast, a local historian slash librarian. Actually, I'm a local history librarian, and um, I've sort of come through libraries. I've been in libraries since 1981, and I've been doing this particular job for 25 years. Uh, but uh, it's something that uh, is more aligned to my passions than my actual uh, formal qualifications. This sort of stereotype of a historian is someone, you know, with leather elbow patches on their tweed jackets and bits of hair sticking out and their buttons done up not quite correctly and, you know, you might sort of run into them in the archive, a dusty archive, or the the smell of dust coming off them as they open and shut their books. You don't look like that at all. You look like you've come straight from your office job or council job. What does a local history librarian do? Okay, from day to day, there is a lot of variety involved in what I do. Um, We collect uh, local history resources, which might be diverse as diverse as uh, old maps, photographs, uh, printed material, ephemera, um, books, all sorts of uh, reports and things relating to a local area. Um, then we have to um, organise it and uh, conserve it so that it can be actually used by uh, the public. Um, we have to make it accessible. So, for example, cataloguing and um, digitising is a big part of what we do. Um, And from day to day, we're dealing with the general public who come in and they might have casual inquiries that relate to their families in a local area or to a particular question they have about the local area. Um, It might be heritage consultants looking at particular sites in an area. Um, There might be discoveries in an area where, say, roads and traffic are doing some road work and they discover a corduroy road uh, and they need information on it. So, like, it's incredibly diverse work. You never know from day to day what you're going to be doing. Mm. Uh, What was your journey to the history side of things? You said you'd worked in libraries before, but what gravitated, what was the sort of pull for this? Okay, I've always been interested in history. My my grandmother uh, was a great storyteller and uh, come from a family of storytellers. And uh, basically, uh, I'd always been interested in local history and, and family history and sort of joined historical societies early on. Um, I've always been interested in railways. I was a member of the Zigzag Railway for a few years as a volunteer, working on the carriages and engines and things up there. But um, around the bicentennial time, I got to look after a uh, rural museum that was being established at Galston, um, at Fagan Park. And uh, so I got to learn a lot about the local agriculture and citrus farming and that and it kind of um, uh, 
got me interested in in the possibilities of becoming a librarian that worked with those sorts of collections and local history collections. Is there a lot of interest in the Gosford area, Central Coast area, in local history? Um, yes, I think there is, and, and it sort of grows with social media, mm. you know, like there's lots of Facebook groups and things like that, um, and lots of people always, you know, commenting on photographs and things like that. Um, the 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 other interest i suppose see we deal with a lot of um very passionate um enthusiasts history enthusiasts be they in uh, historical societies or individuals who have a passion and often those individuals will sort of have a question that leads to a bigger project or you know sometimes years of research which might result in a book but it all adds to the local history, mm. uh, the body of information available on, on a local area. Mm. When I was introducing you, I gave a pretty crude stereotype of what a historian looks like. Um, you know, old, bit stuffy, stuck in an archive. It's quite different from the sort of amateur or enthusiast historians that you're describing, which is actually very grassroots, yes. very community-oriented, and also often really collaborative and community-based. It's not just one person alone. I'm sure there's a little bit of that, but, you know, it's shared on social media. Mm. It's given back to the community. How does how do you think this kind of community-based history um, contribute to our not only our broader historical knowledge of the past, but also how we do history? Um, because it's so grassroots, um, it involves a vast number of people in the community so there are the there are sort of like uh, the the people who are involved in the history actually a lot of the histories that have been done in recent times have been very timely because the the people involved are dying out mm. uh, no longer you know they're now no longer with us or will, but they were with us at the start of these projects that people um begin on a particular area so it's really timely that they're recording that history while it's still available um, I think that it's a very democratic uh, lovely democratic way of doing history in that um, there's not one gatekeeper who knows everything about that topic it's those people will the people doing the projects will go to any number of archives or to any number of libraries or um, to family members or to community members um, to institutions within that community to draw the information out and put it together and then they often present it uh, there, there was a history of Umina that was done recently and that project started out small and the lady involved, uh, Julie Atchison, did a lot of research over the years. But it, she actually gave back to the community through displays that she would have from time to time. She would have um, a, a DVD was made that resulted from her research and a lovely DVD of Umina history was created. And then finally, a um, fairly major publication has resulted that's recorded the first 50 years of your minor history which otherwise would not have been recorded and all along it's drawn people in from the community it's created a sense of community pride it's it's really enhanced that sense of 
uh, not only the pride, but of community. Mm. You know, we are a, a group that belongs to Umina, mm. and we're proud of that area. And this is our story. And this is our story. And, you know, we owe so much to these people for actually having the energy and the stamina because mm. it does take a mm. lot of work and it does take a lot of time to actually pull these things together. Um, I'm reminded of um, the British historian Alison Lightfoot's quote where she, she wrote in a newspaper article a few years ago that um, uh, family history is the third most popular internet activity after shopping and porn. Um, and I guess in a way that boom in local studies and local histories and community and family histories has been facilitated by the internet and the digitisation of archives and now anyone can hop on and look at Trove and mm. you know you can really have this huge kind of spread. Have you noticed in your 25 years working in, in local history through the local government a change in the numbers of people being interested in history and also how they're doing it? Um, yeah, I think it's it's, it's grown exponentially. Um, I think that uh, a lot of as we get more and more people who are um, more tech savvy there and computer savvy there, they're starting to to latch on to those great resources like Trove. Trove is wonderful, mm. um, and the amount of digitised material certainly gives you um, much better access to a lot of topics than before. Um, libraries such as ours, we have a lot of material um, and we're working towards digitisation of a lot of it, uh, but we've got a long way to go. Mm. And um, and I think that's going to be a, a, a challenge in the next few years is to sort of uh, find platforms that we can use to actually get all of that material out there. Um, but yeah, there has been a, a, an exponential growth and, and a, an in, a sort of a. It's it's amazing the range you know of questions you get, and some are some are like I said are so sort of just idle curiosity sort of questions right through to very detailed questions mm. about a lot. A lot of people are interested in our area on the the property that they live on. You know, increasingly they're they're starting to ask, "Oh, okay, this is my place." Um, it's a little bit more challenging often than to find history on them than, say, a city block or whatever mm. that might be have rape books and all these sorts of records about them. But um, yeah, there's some terrific um, interest in in those sorts mm. of topics that you know, and, and it is growing. But the access to resources is is improving out of sight, really. How do you, as a librarian and I suppose as a public institution, how do you prioritise those questions? Like, whose historical questions get answered first or where's the library putting its resources to answer those questions? Okay. Basically, if they come to us with a question, it's first in, first served. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> and and it, does make it, it does make it easy um, in that... And that's really the only way we can do it. I mean, there are times when there, you know, we we get a question, say from, uh, like I said, the the Roads and Traffic Authority, and they've discovered something, and they've got a very short time frame right. to do something about it or whatever, um, and we need to provide them with that information as quickly as possible. But generally, it's a first in, first serve. We don't sort of say, oh, this question is more important than. Mm. Than you know, the, the question the question of uh, you know a, 
lady in in Melbourne about a a place where she played as a child is no less important than you know a, a council inquiry mm. or or um, those sort of institutional inquiries with a sort of an important role to um, archive and be an archive are there I'm interested in what do you do with some of the histories of the Central Coast that can't be housed in archives, like Indigenous histories um, that perhaps are in the environment around us, you know, in the landscape, um, if rock art or oral histories that are in people's houses and communities and in, you know, even in their, mm. in their own minds. Mm. Um, how do you deal with that as a public institution? Okay, we haven't, I would like to, but we haven't. Uh, had the resources to do a lot with with Indigenous communities. Um, we do have oral histories in our own collection, sure. quite a large collection that we've digitised, but there's not a lot that we can do with, unless we've got the resources to approach it in a systematic fashion. And with those communities... Um, you can't just bolt in and mm. say, here, give us your stuff. Mm. Um, you want to build trust. Um, it, it's often more on a personal relationship level that you build that trust and, and you and it takes time and, and what have you. But, but no, it's, not, it's an area I'd really like to do much more with. But uh, yeah, our resources are sort of stretched. Can you tell us a little bit about the local history of the Central Coast? Uh, yes. Um, okay, there's probably 60,000 years of Indigenous history and we've got one of the richest rock art galleries um, in in Australia, uh, if not the world, in our area, in up around uh, Woiwoi and the hinterland. Um, the... Uh, first European settler was James Webb who came to uh, he settled at the Rip uh, near Woi Woi in 1823 and um, development was very slow in the area, it was really only when the railways came through in the 1880s that you get um, you start to get people uh, more people settling in the area Um, there was a, a before the railways, of course, there was a, uh, a major industry was the shipbuilding industry. And between 1829 and 1953, there were over 500 named vessels, ships built in our district on Brisbane water. Um, then you sort of, after the railways in the 1880s, you sort of uh, jumped to the 1930s when the freeway, or not the freeway, it was the highway then, um, came to Gosford and, and went up through the Central Coast. And um, so, uh, you, and then of course you get gradual improvements to the roads and the infrastructure over time. Um, the uh, citrus industry was another major industry in our area. Um, and uh, that really sort of started on the lowlands in about the 1890s and then um, went up to uh, the Summersby Plateau and um, there's still remnants of that industry around but it's sort of heyday sort of uh, was up to the 1940s. That that sort of um, history of distance or transport is actually so important, isn't it, in terms of the not only... I guess just the travel from Sydney to the Central Coast, for example. I remember um, listening to an oral history of a local 
fishing family who um, you know used to catch prawns and they said they would stand next to the train station with gum leaf boughs sort of keeping the flies off their prawns waiting for the train to sort of roll up at the station and take the catch to Sydney uh, which is sort of it's not that long ago um, but you know how times change yeah transport uh, I mean would have been quite isolated it was quite isolated and the the um, the nature of uh, the the central coast was that little communities would often spring up uh, often related to the shipbuilding right? and when the shipbuilders had a, a they'd have a a slipway and they'd build a couple of ships and then there might be a blacksmith shop established to you know supply the iron parts of the vessel and um, then little communities would start around those slipways and they'd turn into uh, settlements like Blackwall mm-hmm. um, Empire Bay Davis Town but Though the history of the area is that all those little villages would grow up in, in, you know, separately, and they'd all be their own community of interest with their own distinct history, and it it it, it sort of um, there's still those villages still have their own identities today, which is great, mm. um, but that relates to the the way that the early settlement but also the the hilly nature of the of the area it's quite rugged very rugged you're listening to glam city on 2ser 107.3 to download this show head to 2ser.com or your favorite podcast app and look for glam city this show is made by the australian center for public history at uts with support from 2ser and today we're speaking with local history librarian jeffrey potter from the central coast Council and Library. Jeffrey, we've been talking a little bit about the history of the Central Coast um, and a little bit about the sort of library in which you in which you work. What prompted the first library on the Central Coast? Why do people want to or need, I guess, historical records of their own communities? Okay. Well, the, the library in our local area uh, got started in uh, 1948. So that's the library service. And Interestingly, it sort of started out because there were um, lots of changes to the boundaries of shires around that time, both around Sydney. There'd been a lot, lots and lots of small councils, and up on the central coast there was a history of smaller councils, uh, Erina Shire and Woiwoi Shire and what have you. And then those, in 1948, those shires would, were dissolved and then out of that, Gosford Shire and Wyong Shire formed. And um, so what would happen is uh, you'd centralise your administration and that freed up buildings, right? So old council chambers at Woiwoi and at Gosford became available for other purposes. And so around that time, the Library Act, um, there was a push to get public libraries in many communities across Australia, across New South Wales and Australia. And so the local push for a library service began. And in 1948, a little library opened in a former Erinna Shire Council uh, building and also in uh, Woiwoi Shire Council building. And uh, Woiwoi actually pipped Erinna, the one at Gosford, right? Uh, But um, 
the collection of local history in the library started probably about 35, maybe 40 years ago. And it sort of it started in a small way. I mean, any local history collection or any collection is only as good as the people mm. that have been in the job and have collected. So we were fortunate from the start. My predecessors, to whom I'm very grateful, they um, started collecting and um, there were sort of limitations because of the building they were in and what the amount that could be collected. And I think that they actually started out doing it as part of a uh, another job. You know, they might have been a reference librarian and did a little bit of the local history collection. Eventually, they employed local history librarians, uh, of which I'm about the third. And um, But they've built, over the years, they've built a very substantial collection. But um, one of the reasons I think that uh, a local history collection in a library uh, got going is, um, see, there are historical societies out there that do collecting communities. But there's also libraries um, have uh, an ability, if they do start collecting, they can make material available pretty much any time the library's open um, to the general public, to council, to business, whoever. Um, And historical societies do a marvellous job. They do an absolutely fabulous job. but being volunteer organisations, they're not always mm. available mm. or have the resources mm. to make their materials available. What's your favourite historical resource that you have, not necessarily at your fingertips, but in the bowels of the library? Okay, my favourite uh, my favourite collection is one that a fellow called Les Allen um, created. He was, uh, he was a uh, self-appointed photographer for Central Coast Leagues Club. And between 1963 and the 1980s, he took photographs of practically every performing artist and act that uh, the singers, the the magicians, the contortionists, the knife throwers, um, the uh, Dinah Lees and Little Patties and <laughs> um, every, every artist that played there, um, he photographed. And we've got this uh, quite remarkable archive of photographs that, as far as we know, and we've been told this, that um, there's no other performing Mm. arts archive like this photography collection. Um, It's actually starting to be sought out by serious researchers of variety history uh, because it's so unique. But to actually get those performers performing... Uh, photographs of those are exceptionally rare. Mm. So that's that would be my favourite mm. collection. Mm. Um, but we're very we're actually blessed for some really good collections. Um, we a couple of years ago, uh, a lot of material from um, Spike Milligan's family was donated to the library, and Spike's family had connections to Woi Woi from the 1950s onwards, and uh, Spike actually wrote some books there and and. Uh, but the f- uh, the family Spike's um, Spike's brother Desmond, who's now passed away, and Spike's uh, uh, nephew Michael uh, donated a tremendous archive of exceptionally rare, well, unique family history 
family archives, original photographs, documents, memorabilia, all sorts of things, which we now have put in a permanent display at Woi Woi Library. And we actually got a state library infrastructure grant uh, to assist with that permanent display. And uh, so we're able to celebrate that connection uh, with Spike, mm. uh, you know, and his family to Woi Woi. So that's another favourite collection. You're sort of alluding here to, I guess, my next question, which is you're part of this um, New South Wales organisation, which is um, a, a, sort of an organisation organization of local history librarians. Yeah. What do you do? Is it useful sharing? Do you share resources? Do you... What do you guys do when you get together? Okay. Um, Some sort of strange good, handshakes, we have <laughs> library. Good morning teas. Yeah. Good morning teas. Um, no, we uh, get together twice a year and uh, one one of them, one meeting is uh, a regional meeting and the other's a metropolitan meeting. And we uh, basically share, share information on projects that we're working on, um, that uh, methods of doing things like what's a useful platform to get your digitised material yep. out on um, oral history projects there's some great resources um, the state library is developing a, a, a um, platform called audacity yeah. for their oral histories and um, that uses uh, crowd sourcing to actually transcribe the, the oral histories and we learn about those new resources and those, those there's some fabulous mm. material you know and, and platforms and things that we learn about so does every local council have a local hist- have, a, have a sort of council historian um, many do um, it, it's really hard to generalize um, uh, a lot of the larger libraries do have local history librarians uh, or local studies librarians the terminology changes a bit um, but uh, yeah, a lot of the larger libraries do. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for having for coming on to our Glam City episode. We usually finish with the, what we call a Glam Slam segment, where we look into our diaries at what's coming up. Um, what are you going to be getting your hands into in History Land? Oh well, we've got the 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 usual sort of round of. Um, I think we've got History Week coming up in at the end of the year in uh, September, I think it is, and uh, we usually do displays and, and events around that. Um, as far as the local studies librarians group, we've got a meeting in Albury uh, in November, um, and then into next year we'd have a metropolitan meeting at some destination to be announced, but... Um, but uh, yeah, there's a sort of a, a constant stream of events and displays, mm. and and uh, you know, so uh, it, it makes life very interesting. Do you ever drive around the Central Coast and sort of with your you know roll your window down and sort of have a look at and go, oh geez, I'd like that in my library, like a bowerbird, a history bowerbird. Oh you, yeah, look, I think the people I work with would say that yes, I'm a definite bowerbird, <laughs> and. Uh, they sometimes refer to the collection in a not too complimentary way, um, but uh, the uh, look, there's still stuff out there. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Um, it's amazing what turns up. You know, from, from when someone's clearing out a house, we had something from Melbourne um, arrive about a year ago, and it was a, a lovely published 
printed piece of ephemera, a map from about 1911, that turned out to be the first published um, tourist map for Woi Woi. You know, and pristine condition had been, someone had been to Woi Woi, been on their holidays, gone back to Melbourne, put in the drawer, forgotten for 70 years or so, but um, stuff still turns up, which mm. which is absolutely amazing. And and actually, when you get those parcels, that's like Christmas. That's lovely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That brings us to the close of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, just head to the 2SER website. That's 2SER.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. You can also hit me up on Twitter under at Anna Hope Clark. Is, does the Gosford Council tweet? the library tweet? No, we don't. No. Un- untweeting. But you can certainly find them on their website. This podcast is made by a collaboration between the Australian Centre for Public History and 2SER 107.3. It's produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to acknowledge them as the original custodians of this land who've been archiving culture and telling stories for generations. In the meantime, I'd also like to thank Geoffrey Potter for coming on Book Door today and being our guest. Thanks, Geoffrey. Thank you, Anna.